Hello and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental enthusiasts, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Laura and I talk about where do we go from here, which is basically to food, apparently. Um, <laughs> we have Sonny Fleming back on the show to talk about the history of the environmental policy in the U.S., the future of data, and mountain biking as a metaphor for life. And finally, in honor of our mountain bike conversation, here are some fun facts about them. Mountain bikes were invented in the 1800s. The longest downhill run starts at around 17,000 feet and has a 10-kilometer no-fall zone, which means if you fall, you fall off a cliff, I'm assuming to your death, so I will not be doing that. And finally, <laughs> the fastest speed ever recorded on a mountain bike was 141 miles an hour, which also seems equally reckless. Uh, so there you go. <laughs> mountain bikes. Not for me, thanks. <laughs> not for me. <laughs> Hit that music. South Carolina chapter of NAP is pleased to announce their next Lunch and Learn, January 26th. Riverkeeper Bill Stangler will be speaking about their mission to protect and improve water quality, wildlife habitat, and recreation on the broad, lower Saluda, and Congaree rivers through advocacy, education, and enforcement of environmental laws, as well as some of their current programs. They are offering an in-person and virtual option for the event. Attendees must register for the in-person event. Please visit their website at naap-sc.org to register. All right. We are lacking a sponsor for this episode. So that means it's time for 30 seconds of fun with Nick. All right. And let's see, we're off. Okay. I know Laura, you know, you're going to work and um, there's no, there's no inclement weather. Um, it's, it's a nice day. <laughs> and you were thinking maybe, maybe um, uh, this is too easy, right? I'm having too much fun. I'm not even thinking about my commute. I'm not, I'm not worried about getting to work. Now, if you wanted to worry, we have the product for you. It's called Hurricanes for Me. And that is absolutely guaranteed hurricane force winds, no matter what you're doing or where it is. That is right, both inside and outside. <laughs> we will literally blow your socks off. Okay. I'm telling you right now, it's the newest product. Everyone's going to love it. I think my microphone just died. I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> but there we go. Hurricane force winds so strong, it'll even mute me. <laughs> <laughs> Bam, right on time. How did it go with Sunny? I can't oh, believe great. I didn't miss her again. <laughs> yeah, it was it was of course it was great. It was absolutely all of this effort to reschedule her so you would be there. And then I'm like, no, I'm not here. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then yeah. Uh yeah, it was fantastic. She was really fun. She had of course we talked about the history of environmental policy, but then we really started focusing on like where where we're going from here. And we talked a little bit about biodiversity and resiliency and where are we missing the mark on some of those things. And one of the very interesting conversations we always seem to have with her is, you know, like, what should we be doing now? Should we be conserving the planet based on how it was or where it's going? And so it's a really interesting conversation as always. So it's really fun. I think everybody's going to enjoy it. Well, the end. <laughs> where do we go from here? I know. I know. But it, I, I mean, I don't know. It's like what, we're at the <laughs> beginning of a year, New Year's resolution time. It's always kind of like a philosophical thing. I mean, my brother's about to have his first kid. And so Ooh. I talked to him yesterday for That's like That's exciting. When did that happen? Eight months ago, they started the journey. Uh, so we're about a month <laughs> away. Um, and uh, yeah, he got real philosophical on me. How am I just and, hearing about this? 
Oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm bad at saying that's kind of stuff. But no, it's really cool. It's really neat perspective, especially to see him talk about, you know, like, man, life, huh? And he's just not that person. He's never been. That's always been me. I'm always introspective. So it's really fun to see him be very introspective before he becomes a dad, you know, and uh, you start wondering, thinking about like the things that you would do differently in your parents and then realizing that no matter what you do, there's still going to be quirks and flaws and, you know, there's no perfect way to parent. And yeah. Yeah. You know, it was kind of funny to talk about. We, we had a good time. That's cool. So you're going to be an uncle the first time. Yeah. First time. Yeah. 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 That's exciting. So yeah, very, very excited to visit, um, <laughs> rile the, the child up and then leave and have them deal with the temper tantrum afterwards. I did do this to my best friend's, kids as well so i'm I'm at least used to it and I'm, I'm, this is not gonna be total shock but it was funny he's like my best friend has three kids under the age of six right and uh <laughs> i went i was visiting them after their first kid uh was old enough to like know who i was well two things right one he thought every every man was named nick which was adorable <laughs> um, um so he's like not uncle Ken, nick, nick uncle nick uncle nick he's like no no that's just those are random people um and then like one time, like he literally had a temperature tantrum the second I left and he was like keeping it together for me. And then when I left, he lost his mind and it's just like, yeah, that's kids. <laughs> <laughs> so very fun. That's great. I love my aunt roll. I rolled in, have a good time. Waltz yeah. out. Yeah. Okay. So how many, we haven't <laughs> talked about this at all. How many, how many um, nieces and nephews? Oh, no, we haven't. I have six. You have six? Yeah. Jeez, I'm big time auntie, and then I yeah. have like my other families that I'm adopted into that I, I yeah. have like uh, you know some uh, some others that are all becoming adults, which is crazy. But there's yeah. four others there, no five, sorry. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, mm -hmm. the six blood nieces and nephews. Um, yeah, they're between four and sixteen. Jeez, yeah, that's fun. Yeah, my brother has three, my sister has three, and. Yeah, my two nieces are the ones I took care of. I think we did talk about that before. I took care of when oh, they were that's right. yeah. four. Um, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. my niece. Yeah, she's was four. Now she's fourteen. She's a boyfriend. Wow, it's crazy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't think I would handle that well. I uh, yeah, yeah. I would love to say that I would. Oh yeah, yeah. But then you you know your kids starting to date. This is such a strange phenomenon. You know, it's just I can't even imagine. Um, it's yeah, they grow up fast. I think about yeah. myself at 14 and I'm like, no. I know. I did I that. Know. I was doing what when I was oh. 14? How did my parents live? <laughs> I know. How'd they sleep at night? <laughs> yeah. Golly. I remember like I was in like, I think it was like post-grad school. I think it was in my mid or late twenties, and I'm visiting my my dad. And we were just this is two of us at a um Mexican restaurant and this group of teenagers in uh high school sits so like right behind us. And they will not stop. They won't shut up, first of all. They're just like literally rolling through the dumbest conversation I've ever heard in my life. It's irrelevant. It's But they think it's the most important thing that's ever happened, right? It is just like, wow, you guys are really, okay. You know, this is just bad. And I'm looking at my dad. I'm like, was I like that when I was in high school? And he's like, do you want me to be honest with you? Or um, <laughs> yes. Like, yes, of course yeah. you were. This is yeah, part every of life. teenager thinks everything they've ever said is the most interesting thing that's ever been said. Yes, right. you were exactly like. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and it's not to say, yeah, you know, like I say, we all have, the, you know, there's great things about being young too, and there's a, you know, 
So I don't want to. I don't want this to come across like old people. <laughs> All these good juice. Babies, oh, talk you for know? yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you do want to come across. <laughs> No, oh, no, no. Too funny. you're the old speaking as an old person oh um, right oh that's right that's right <laughs> i'm sure when i hang out with my nieces and nephews they just think i'm super cool mm-hmm, mm-hmm. absolutely <laughs> my, um so my best friend's kids i saw them a few months ago and they were like <laughs> uncle nick's new car looks fast and i'm like yeah it's not <laughs> but it does look fast <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, my niece wants to travel with me, so that I'm, I'm like, when that like, yeah, life is good. I can't well, wait to travel yet. with them. That's really cute. Yeah, I mean, I know, right? They, I'm, I mean, 14 is close to being. Oh, it's actually about. the 12 year old, 14 year old. She's like boyfriend video games. Oh, I'm not right. anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> my 12 year old niece, she's the one who's like, "Where do you go? I yeah. want to go." And I'm like, "Where do you want to go?" She's like, "Italy." I'm like, "Yes." <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, of course. Oh my god! No, I just got to sell her mother. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the joys of travel is you get to have all these wonderful experiences. You know, it's like uh, being in Luxembourg and having, which is a really international city. So there's a ton of people from all over Europe living there. And it's, you just have, I just, you just reminded me of this great Italian meal I had there. <laughs> that they literally had like Parmesan, like a Parmesan wheel. And they will literally shave off pieces of this wheel into your pasta. And it is just, oh, it's magical. So like that, I love that, you know? You do that in Italy like every day. (laughs) This segment was all about where do we go from here? Apparently it's to food. Yeah, it's to food. Yeah. That's where mm -hmm, it always goes. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I do love a good pasta. Kind of, I mean, gotta be honest. So well, let's get to that interview with Sunny that I am super sad I missed. (laughs) There we go. Hello and welcome back to EPR. Today we have Sunny Fleming, our Esri GIS correspondent, back on the show. Welcome back, Sunny. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be back. I know it. And of course, we want to start in the very obvious place, like we always do, with uh, puppies. So (laughs) you got a new dog. We got a new dog. We got a Siberian Husky. We got him at eight weeks old, but he's now 12 weeks old. And uh, we've named him Odin after the god of war because I have very specific naming philosophies. And that is that uh, whatever you name the dog, the attitude will be the opposite. And so I'll name him the God of war and hope that he's like really peaceful and chill. And so far it's working out in my favor. Um, He and and Elsie, my existing dog are getting along. So I'm pretty excited. Yeah. That's cute. Is your other dog also a Husky? No, she's a German shepherd lab mix and she really is not too keen on other dogs. And so we've, we've been looking for a dog a companion dog for her for a long time. And we bit the bullet on this one, took a bit of a risk. And because my, my philosophy was that he would be so tiny and helpless that she couldn't be angry at him. And it's worked. She was (laughs) like, Oh my God, it's tiny and helpless. And so as growing up, they're able to like adjust. And yeah, so my philosophy worked. We tried an older puppy with her and and it was uh, not good. And so yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy with how it's going. We just got back from a little family hike, so he's already hiking. He's great. Cute. That's so cute. He's. I guess my, my perception of huskies, and this is, yeah, I can say we're really diving in here, is uh, that they're like loud and they need lots of attention. Is that? Am I wrong? Or correct. Is it, uh... Yes, they're very loud. He may make an appearance today on our podcast. Uh, <laughs> but my, my husband has him downstairs right now, and so hopefully he's. Uh, 
he's getting plenty of activity down there and won't start screaming. But yeah, they they scream. They make lots of very strange noises. They're very vocal. And right. uh, and we knew this going into it. We had a husky mix prior to. So yeah, we're we're prepared, but they're very active dogs. As you can imagine, they were bred, you know, to be able to pull sleds and things like that. So he uh, really likes to hike and run. And that's part of the reason that we choose this breed and love it so much. Well, that's really cool. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear it. So I guess now we <laughs> now we have to get into the real meat of our, our conversation here. But um, Oh, man, I just want to talk about puppies all day long. <laughs> yeah, me too. Truthfully, I would love to. <laughs> oh. But, you know, it's funny. Whenever we have you on, we always like to ask about, you know, things that pop up, things you're curious about, things you want to talk about. And um, I love, I mean, you mentioned something about how the, the U.S. basically has led the environmental revolution we see, you know, currently, yeah. not just here, but around the world. And I think through the, you know, national parks and all of our, you know, Definitely. policy that I love as well. And now we're, we're dealing with a new one with climate change all over the world. Yeah. Uh, how are we faring now? You know, I love this question because I think I think it's actually very appropriate for the fact that by the time that this particular episode comes out, New Year's Eve and New Year's will have happened. And that's always the beginning of a new leaf, et cetera, et cetera. And it's actually really good timing to talk about where we're at in our environmental history. We are two days out um, or three days out from... The 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act here in America, and and that in America, but also globally, was an amazing piece of legislation, environmental legislation. But I want to put it in kind of bigger context, because we've talked a lot before about the infrastructure bill and my thoughts on that. We've talked about it kind of in the micro, but I want to talk about these things now in the macro of our environmental history here in the U.S. and. I think about this Roosevelt era of environmentalism, right? And we have our American Antiquities Act, and this gave us some of these really iconic national parks. We had these opportunities at that point in time to create these really massive conservation areas. But the philosophy was still very much that Nature is this place that you kind of go to and then you come back from, right? It was this very separate philosophy. And then we move into more of the um, Nixon era, who he himself wasn't necessarily an environmentalist. I think um, anyone who's in the environmental fields knows this history at a high level, but he knew it was politically sound to do this because there was a lot of public outcry on smog and pollution. And an understanding that our environment, you know, we were interacting with it and it was interacting with us. And so that moved us into what I call the environmental era. So I think Roosevelt was more of the conservation era. Nixon was the environmental era and we get our foundational environmental policy. But Mm -hmm. now I think we're moving into a third era of conservation policy and environmental policy in the U.S. And it's being brought on partly by public demand, just as we saw in these first two eras, but also because climate change is so viscerally in our face now, and these issues are in our face now. And what I think we're moving into is a third era, the sustainability era of environmental Mm. policy. And I think 
to me, the infrastructure bill didn't do anything revolutionary as far, as far as like new policy goes, but it set the foundation from a semantic standpoint, talking about how we really need to be more holistic and understand that all sectors have responsibility in how we steward our environment. And so I'm really optimistic moving into 2024 and beyond to see how this develops. And I don't by any means think that it's going to be a smooth road. Um, <laughs> But I am really excited. I, I am very optimistic about how climate change is going to force us to reassess how we can conduct our lives and our business. And I think, you know, the, the countries that are going to survive geopolitically are going to be the ones that tackle it first and most seriously, I really believe. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, it's a great, gosh, it's a great jumping off point. There's so many different directions we can go. And I totally agree. I think a lot of times we talk, we've even talked a little bit on the show about, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, we don't have to worry about this, but then you pay attention to coastal cities and they're all coming up with sustainability plans. All of them are. Yeah. And they're doing that because they, they have to, it is not a, uh, a pie in the sky thing. So what are those kinds of policies uh, going to change? What are we seeing from, you know, we always want to relate it back to data with you. Like what data are our cities using to enact which kind of policies? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic question. And there is a lot of great data out there. And a lot of it sits on Esri's Living Atlas. So we have a lot of partners, um, a lot of federal partners, but a lot of this data can be global as well, who publish authoritative data out. And I think NASA and NOAA and some of our big federal agencies that put a lot of data out there, they know that the way that they publish data isn't necessarily the most easily digestible. And so we work with them to publish it in a way that is easily digestible. And part of what came out of that actually was we worked with the White House on their Climate Mapping Resilience and Adaptation Portal. So CAMRA for short, CMRA. So this is a public-facing portal that synthesizes all of that data along with um, climate predictions. And you can zoom in down to a census block level and understand at a census block level what the climate hazards are. And this allows communities to be able to understand maybe what they should be prioritizing, right? So Mm -hmm. I think in coastal cities, it's obviously sea level rise, right? But when you look at cities like I live in, it may be less obvious. It may be more flooding or more heat. And so this breaks those things down and it allows communities to understand what their priorities should be, what it might look like in the future. And that can really help them understand what grants they could go after that really target mitigation or adaptation efforts. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing a lot of states and cities now start basically creating their own climate adaptation portals, right? They may have more authoritative, finer scale data um, based on sensor networks or things like that and creating their own hubs for this and their own climate action plans using things like ArcGIS Hub to help engage the community to empower, you know, people and individual households to take action. So things like tree planting and shade equity, but also understanding what trees should go where, right? So native species are going to be more resilient. And so really providing the community with the education information, but also the opportunity and the resources necessary to take action at a local scale. So I think it's really cool what I'm seeing now with a lot of climate action plans coming out. Yeah. So it's kind of like, to me, it sounds a lot like, you know, like when we have impaired water bodies, right? We know we have like a 303D impaired water bodies list that states have. 
Mm-hmm. And kind of water body, it says, oh, it's impaired for these three reasons. And then like, you know, what you're talking about almost sounds like we'll be able to, again, look at our, our census block data, our, our census data, uh, click on it and says, oh, uh, climate concerns are, you know, flooding or, you know, air quality or whatever it is. Is that where we're we're heading or are you saying we're already there? I mean, I would say that there's momentum to head there at scale, but I would say a lot of communities are already there. So I think Massachusetts is a fantastic example of a state who has published a climate action portal um, on Hub. And a local example would be the city of Tucson. They're actually one of the first climate action hubs I ever saw. Um, And again, they're using ArcGIS Hub. So, you know, we have this great federal example with the White House CMRA. We have that great state example with Massachusetts and some others. I'm just kind of calling these out specifically as examples. And then that great local example with Tucson. And they all have, you know, very different scopes and interests and scale. Tucson, they're really focused on heat and tree planting and those kinds of initiatives. Massachusetts, you mentioned it already, right? We know flooding and sea level rise. And then, of course, the White House wants to make sure that everyone has equitable access and can easily understand these issues at a national level and provide people with directions to the proper resources to help them mitigate those things like federal grants and stuff. So, I'm really excited to see this momentum at all scales of government. I know there's tribal examples as well, especially with like specific tribal projects taking advantage of federal funds out of the infrastructure bill and doing really cool story maps with things like stream restorations and wetland restorations. So I've seen some really cool stuff out of all sorts of different kinds of communities and levels of government. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) I guess I love it. And I feel like that's the real positive side of things. And I think like one of my favorite things about you is that we get to be pretty philosophical as well. Right. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Esri definitely gives me a lot of latitude to think big and be philosophical. And I know I can be a little overly optimistic sometimes. I wouldn't call it overly optimistic, but, um, but you know that we work environmental professionals were faced with existential crisis every single day. And so if you aren't optimistic and if you don't see that silver lining, you can really get burnt out. And so I really um, always encourage environmental professionals to try and be optimistic. I know our our jobs are tough. Right, right. Which brings me perfectly to my next question. (laughs) (laughs) So like one of the things we've talked about a little bit is like, um, you know, like climate resilience and uh, biodiversity and how there's some conflict with what is our path for actually changing things. How much change do we allow a community to go through biologically because of the way things are going versus what was historically how this community existed? And it's a fascinating question. It's something I never thought about until you and I started talking about it. But where are we with this right now? It's a really tough question. And I think, and this is where I can be a little bit technocratic, Because when I look, again, if we talk about kind of the history of environmental policy, I I don't know if we've talked about this, but when I moved into this new house in Asheville, Mm -hmm. we had to completely renovate the entire house. And it it was built in the 60s, in the very early 60s. And so there was a lot of really interesting original components to this house. And one of them are these very strange doorbells that we have. And these doorbells They're called the Gold Metal House. And the slogan is live better electrically. 
And when I started looking into what this was, Mm -hmm. it was actually an effort by electric companies to get domestic households to use more electricity. Because what was going on at the time was that a lot of households used fire or oil in Mm. their homes and it polluted the homes directly. And at the time they wanted to move people off of that. It was partly a marketing scheme, right? There were a lot of dams being built at this time, which is bad for the environment. But the burning of coal in homes was also bad for the environment. So I think we're actually at a very similar crossroads right now where we can all agree that not burning coal in your home is healthier for you. Moving and diverting that point of pollution to... A more centralized location, right? But we also can all agree that we now understand the impacts that dams have on the environment. And so we're in a really interesting position at this time in history as well. So this is moving into that Nixon era of environmental policy where we have these things that feel like they're at odds with each other. But the fact of the matter is is that moving to more electricity and centralizing those point sources of pollution did actually help us decrease issues with smog. So Mm -hmm. I look at that and I think about the current era that we're in and I do feel optimistic, but it's not going to be easy. So when we look at where do we site solar fields? Well, these are massive solar fields. They have an impact on the environment. So this is more of an easy one though, because we do also have places where we've already impacted the environment that are appropriate for solar fields. So can we do solar fields and some restoration? I've seen that. That's really successful. But Mm -hmm. windmills, there's a lot of discussion with windmills right now. And, you know, are they hurting bat populations? Are they in in their massive, you know, campuses as well that they put in the middle of deserts and deserts are functioning ecosystems, right? you know, and so there's a lot of tension there. Batteries and knowing that we have to mine for precious minerals for batteries. So there's a really interesting question posed at a conference that I was at earlier this year, and it was to all of the environmental commissioners of the states. And the question, I won't say who it came from, no, but, <laughs> but it's a tough question. And basically the question was, what are we going to have to give up in order to transition to a clean energy economy? And you could hear a pin drop in the room. Everyone was very uncomfortable with the question. Mm. And I feel like what we did not have in the 50s and 60s when my gold medal home was being built that we do have today is technology. And that technology and, and GIS in particular allows us to overlay different bits of information to understand really sticky, multi-perspective, complex problems and come up with the best possible solutions and also predict how those solutions will behave in the future. So I really encourage us, though, to embrace this. I think we all are individually, but we're almost stopping short in some ways, Not, not completely, but I'd say as a community, as a whole, as a practice, as an expected habit, we're stopping short of really embracing that technology to truly collaborate across our different sectors. And I'm excited because it's there. Technology is not holding us back. We've just got to have the will to do it. That's really cool. But like, okay, so um, this is such a nerd question I'm going to ask you right now. Um, (laughs) 
when you talk about like holistic data, right, you're getting data from different sources that's saying different things to kind of model out something that gives you a range of perspectives. Like, like, like to me, that's like one of the most challenging things data that we ask of data. So like, mm-hmm. how do you do that? How do you make sure that you're actually capturing, like, you know, we're talking about like uh, both biodiversity and development or, you know, like whatever it is, however you're putting things together, how do you capture the natural and human environment well? <laughs> well, I think that's a fantastic question. And I do think we, in many ways, have a ways to go. When it comes to biodiversity data, here in the US, we have the world's best and strongest model of it. And that comes from a nonprofit organization called NatureServe. They, uh-huh. they have built in, they started in the 70s. They began in the 70s having heritage programs in every state And they developed a methodology and a system to aggregate and collect this data up. And what we have actually failed to do in other areas is we may put policies out there, right? Thou shalt record your water quality. Thou shalt, you know, uh, send in reports to the EPA, et cetera. But we're actually not embracing technology to ensuring that we're really capturing this data at scale, bringing it up systematically. and. I think we could look to the NatureServe model and the Heritage Network and what they've done and expand on that in other areas of policy so that we can actually start capturing this data. And we do it some, but it can be really painful. Maybe we have different standards on how that data is collected, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of elbow grease that has to go into collecting it. But also that's boots on the ground, manually collected information. And something that's coming along and it's getting better and better every day, is remotely sensed information. And that is coming from satellites, and it's getting higher and higher resolution every day. So it used to be that 30-meter elevation data was the best you could get. (laughs) And now, you know, we can fly a drone and get a micro, you know, and and get down sub-centimeter, right? But these satellites are starting to approach that quality as well. And so we're starting to see massive amounts of information, different kinds of sensors coming from NASA, but also coming from the European Space Agency. And they're collecting all sorts of fascinating information about our environment. So moisture levels, not biodiversity yet as far as like a species specific goes, but some level of understanding of the relative quantity of biodiversity in an area. So all sorts of really amazing, rich information that are coming from these satellites that are starting to be available more broadly and high enough resolution that we can ask really interesting, fascinating questions. <laughs> That's so cool. Gosh, it's uh, I love nerding out with you. Um, <laughs> so, okay, well, one of the other things that you brought up that I really want to dive into a little bit is the kind of the differences, like both with the U.S.'s Endangered Species Act and Canada's version of the same thing, mm-hmm. you mentioned that they're different, yeah. but they have similar fundamental problems. So what, what's, how do they approach endangered species? And what are their pros and cons, I guess? I love this question. And at a high level, I'll state this first. Both of them are extremely underfunded. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so um, I think a lot of the problems that they face are really tied to that. And if we want to get serious about biodiversity here in the U.S., but also in Canada and globally, we're really Uh going to have to fund this. And it's become 
an issue of national security. So I'm going to caveat everything I'm about to say with that statement. Right. Now, in the U.S., we list a species when we know it's already declining, when we know it's already in trouble. So that is fundamentally philosophically different than what Canada does with Sarah or Sarah. They list species before they begin declining with the Mm -hmm. idea that it's preventative, right? We're reactive, they're preventative. Right. So it's really great because you have these two fundamental different philosophies to protect species. But then when you actually look at the success of both programs, and they have been successful in many ways, we are still seeing overall declines in species. So we know that there is a missing puzzle piece here. And that missing puzzle piece really, and there's, there's a little bit of language in the ESA about this, but when I was talking earlier about we're moving towards more holistic philosophies, both are species specific. They're mm-hmm. not really ecosystem specific. They don't really understand the really complex fabric of how species interact and work together, right? And yeah. so any attempt to just protect a singular species really is missing the forest for the trees, pardon the pun, right? And so we're both still struggling to protect our natural processes and our ecosystems and protect ourselves ultimately from right. degradation of these ecosystems and the consequences that those have on our own health. So I'm I'm really looking forward to some future, and I'll start advocating for it here, where mm-hmm. we have more holistic environmental policies that understand that. And again, I, I really truly believe that we do have the technology now to really ask and understand those questions. Right. And you know, I think there's, you know, to even talk about some of those successes, I think that's that's kind of fun for me, right? I know oh, yeah. uh, gray wolves are a perfect example. It's one most people know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also really interesting examples of things that maybe the ESA doesn't really necessarily have a hand in that just kind of happen. We have like uh, mountain lions, cougars, whatever you want to call them, migrating. <laughs> east, um, yeah. And they'd been eradicated from the east. And so now the Western population of those cats are actually moving across the country. And that's really neat to see that they're finding ways. And some of that, I think, is actually related to some of the policies that we've enacted, some of the the land that we've conserved. And that's really cool to see, too. So I definitely don't yeah. want it to all be too bad. But like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, and I've personally been able to, I've had the opportunity, I'm struggling to find my words because when I think about this, it's fascinating. I have both seen a species go extinct. I have witnessed it firsthand, but I've also been involved in efforts to successfully recover and delist other species. And that alone tells me and motivates me to both continue doing the work because I know it works right? right. It's funded when it's successful, when you have passionate people behind it. But it also tells me that we do have a long way to go, that there's no reason that that species that I saw go extinct should have gone extinct, you know? Um, right. And there's so many species we don't even know about, these kind of fringe species. And again, going back to our friends at NatureServe, you know, they they yeah. work on really interesting questions around this. And uh, yeah, there's I people mean, doing the work, but darn it, they need more funding. <laughs> yeah, they really do. And it's funny, we had uh, Lori Scott on uh, yes. the podcast really recently from NatureServe, and it was so fun to just gush uh, about the site with her. And uh, it was super easy to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so cool. I was like, 
I was telling her, basically, I had like a, this is like the dream. When I was a kid, that's the site I wish I knew existed. (laughs) That's awesome. And I think, you know, something that you mentioned on, in one of your discussions with Lori, that I want to emphasize here, we have TNC, right? Nature Conservancy or Audubon, et cetera. They're these household conservation names. Yet I think people really understood how often nature serves data was used and by who. You yeah. know, every environmental professional has used their data, whether they do it or not. <laughs> I think NatureServe would be just as big a household name. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to me that, that things shake out like that, right? But um, yeah, they're such an important nonprofit in the U.S. Uh-huh. here, but also in Canada. They work in Canada as well. They do, yeah. And it's really cool to see, again, I, another shameless plug for them. Please do go check it out. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> Golly. They're not paying me. I'm just a big right. fan. <laughs> We're just big dorks for the same things. Yeah. So, well, like what's crazy to me too is like you talk about funding, right? And I want to yeah. I want play around with this a little bit. One of the things I read an article about de-evolution recently about the amount massive amount of money going towards trying to revive an extinct species, and you know the <laughs> it's both cool and absolutely frustrating at the same time. Yeah. Uh, because what a neat concept that doesn't, in my mind, in my mind, this is my opinion, doesn't have a practical application other than you know, literally <laughs> Jurassic Park, like the, that actual movie, Jurassic Park, right? Where, where you're like, oh, isn't it neat to see this weird thing that's not, that's both not the thing that it used to be and not anything else other than this weird thing we made. Um, yeah. You know, but so much money. And I'm like, can we take that money and put it uh, other places? How do we? I don't know. It's interesting to me because, you know, and this is me being a little cynical, right? But the ego is a powerful thing. And people who have money and an ego can be either very powerful or very dangerous or both. And what I see it cracks me up, right? Because I think what there's a lot of motivation behind the idea of bringing back a dinosaur and, uh, you know, those kinds of things, right? Oh, that would get so much attention. It would be so famous. My name would be tied to that. And I'm like, wow, but you know what? If you put that money towards conservation efforts, you can save the world. And that's a lot sexier. So like, where is that campaign to raise money from these people, you know? So I'm shooting from the hip here, but I am a little bitter about those efforts and I find them a total waste of money and time when we could yeah. be putting it towards much more successful efforts from a probability perspective, but also something that will directly impact ourselves and our world well into the future if we were putting that into conservation efforts. Oh, man. I, I know, right? I knew it, it burns would, me up. would up. I knew it would stir you up. That's why I asked. <laughs> <laughs> To kind of put it back on a positive spin, though, um, you know, there's a lot of things like, you know, there's some historic, you know, you talk about the history of policy in the U.S. And there's been a lot of historic novels, books that have been written about uh, Mm -hmm. policy, what we need, you know, and like um, Silent Spring is kind of the most, I guess, the most iconic uh, in my mind anyway. Like the first, oh, hey, all this stuff you're doing has consequences. So I don't know if people want to dive into the history of, of policy, like, you know, we got Silent Spring. What, what other books, what other recommendations would you make for people trying to learn more about how we got to where we are? So there's a few different books, but I think one of my favorite books that I'm reading right now. So 
So first of all, I love history outside of just environmental stuff. I really will dive into history. And I got into history through genealogy and studying my own family. And then I realized how interesting history was to me. And so bringing those two loves together for me, my love of history and my love of the environment and reading about environmental history, I have fallen in love with this book that came out in 2023, I think, or maybe 2022. Uh Yes, 2022. Silent Spring Revolution. John F. Kennedy, Rachel Carson, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Great Environmental Awakening. The author is Douglas Brinkley. And this book is fantastic. It's super engaging, but it talks about Silent Spring as a component, but really Silent Spring as more of this metaphor around how there were just people with passion and voice. And this caused an entire generation really to rise up and demand specific environmental policy. And then how these different politicians in their circles played a role in this and why. And it's Mm -hmm. fascinating. It talks about nuclear fallout. You know, I'd never really consider nuclear fallout. It talks about the Cold War and how that shaped it. It talks about, it does talk about Roosevelt a little bit. In fact, I think this author has one that focuses more on the Roosevelt era, but I think it's a brilliant understanding of what was going on at the time and all of the influences and the outcomes of that. And I've just been eating it up completely. So I really encourage folks to read that one. So Silent Spring Revolution by Douglas Brinkley. Awesome. That is so great. And yeah, I say we have a few more minutes here to talk about almost anything we want to, but let's have some more, let's, let's dive a little bit more into the the fun stuff here too. Yeah. Uh, I want to know, because again, you do a great job of posing these kinds of questions. Um, how is mountain biking a metaphor for surviving the chaos of life? yeah so um it's interesting i love this question because you know i moved to Asheville from nashville and partly as the uh way for me to get out of just an unhealthy environment and there was a lot of chaos going on in my life there and i needed to we my husband and i we both needed to just remove ourselves and go to a healthier place and ironically I come to a healthier place and it's healthier because it allows me to do stupid activities like mountain biking that could kill me. (laughs) And a lot of people, I read a lot. I'm not an amazing athlete by any means, but I do love following athletics and I love following runners in particular, even though I'm not a great runner, but there's a lot of runners and a lot of athletes in general and a lot of mountain bikers who really get into their activity as a way to soothe trauma, (laughs) to soothe past trauma. And I think it's because it demands, first of all, so much focus. Yeah. It demands so just pushing your body to its limits and just knowing that you can overcome this. And so, you know, the best athletes are the ones that have, they're the most mentally steely, you know, and I see this all the time, even in myself, as soon as my mind starts to like wander and I'm unfocused on something, that's when I crash or that's when I stop running or running in particular, if I'm running and I do a lot of trail running, I I hate running on a road. Roads are just terrible things, but, (laughs) but when I'm running and I start to go down a rabbit hole and I start to have negative thoughts, you know, or I start to get anxious about something coming up at work or in my life, I just, I stop running. 
it manifests itself immediately into not being able to make it up the hill. But if I'm having a good day and I'm mentally focused, then whether I'm on the mountain bike or whether I'm running, you're just able to push through it. And so I think right now, especially in needing to reconnect with, with the environment, I think environmental professionals, we'd all do ourselves a good bit of justice just to uh, push our bodies through some athletics a little bit, get out there, get reconnected, push through this chaos, find that optimism and come back home exhausted, but refreshed. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's such a great and wonderful thing. Um, And we should end there, but uh, (laughs) I also have to know, you said you've never applied for a job. Is that what you said? Yeah. I've never really applied for a job. And I was um, I was laughing about this because <laughs> so this came up just for the the listeners. I have <laughs> it's I would say it's half true, first of all. But right. some of our listeners were curious about GIS careers and how to kind of best align your resume with GIS careers, et cetera, et cetera. And my most current boss, first of all, I'll say this, he hates my resume. He thinks it's terrible. And he was kind of making fun of me because it was very academic. I had like a lot of my old publications on there from when I was a mm-hmm. practicing field botanist. And he was like, why is this necessary? I'm like, I don't know. It's impressive, I guess. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I think the important thing to note here. So most of my jobs and the way that my career has shaped itself has been through a reputation, people knowing me, always having and looking for that open door of opportunity and going with my heart and going with my gut. And so it's rarely been that I have sat down and said, I'm going to apply for jobs or I'm going to leave my job and apply for jobs. That never happens. Right. Um, it's always that there's discussions going on and, you know, we could really use you in this and okay, well, let's talk about it. And, you know, you start to navigate your career that way. So that's how yep. most of my, in fact, all of my jobs have occurred. So, yeah. And honestly, I love it because it's a, such a great, great thing because, I, we, you know, it's nice to be reminded that there's many different ways to get to the same place. Yeah. And I think that's really, really important. So I love that you have your own unique story as we all do. And I think that's kind of a great place to end on for us. Is there anything else before we let you go that yeah. uh, we ask you that we should have? It's about to be the new year. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and I think all these things we've talked about actually really shaped that. I am very optimistic about the future of environmental policy. So there's that. But also, I really encourage if you're a young professional listening to this, listen to what I said about, you know, navigating your career and making sure people talk about networking and that's important. But networking isn't just, you know, going to socials and things like that. It can also be about building your own community where you live. So maybe starting a conservation social or a GIS social in your own neighborhood, getting those two, three people, and then suddenly having, you know, 20 or 30 people and really setting up those opportunities and making those opportunities for yourself. So as we look into 2024, I think we can all think about what are those opportunities we want to create for ourselves, both as environmental professionals, but as people. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. And like I say, Sunny, it's always a pleasure. Um, yes, thank very you. Very much enjoy it. So last but not least, let people know if they want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? They can always find me on LinkedIn. I'm a monster on LinkedIn. I, I really enjoy that platform. 
So I'm just Sonny Fleming on there. You can look me up and please connect with me. All right. Sounds great. Thank you, Sonny. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That's our show. Thank you, Sonny, for being here today. Please be sure to check us out each and every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Bye. See you, everybody.